Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Kim Fu, led by Ben Berman-Gan. My name is Amy LeBlanc, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Kim and Ben discuss Kim's short story collection, Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century. They talk about editorial processes, how where you live affects what you write, community ties, and what's coming next. They also discuss the anxieties and opportunities that come with writing speculative fiction. Kim Fu is the author of the story collection, Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, a finalist for the 2022 Scotiabank Giller Prize. Fu's first novel, For Today I Am a Boy, won the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction and the Canadian Authors Association Emerging Writer Award, and was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, and the Lambda Literary Awards. Fu's second novel, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, was a finalist for the Washington State Book Awards and the Ontario Library Association Evergreen Award. Fu's writing has appeared in Granta, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Hazlitt, and the TLS. Fu lives in Seattle, Washington. Ben Berman-Gan is a writer and editor living in Mohinstis slash Calgary Treaty 7 land and home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, where he's a PhD student in English literature at the University of Calgary. He's the author of the collection, What We See in the Smoke from Crow's Nest Books and the novella Visitation Seeds from 845 Press. His novel, The Years Shall Run Like Rabbits is forthcoming with Wolsick and Wynn for spring 2024. His recent work can be found in Clark's World Magazine, Wrongdoing Magazine and the Thames Review. You can find him at inkstainedrec on Twitter and inkstainedrec.ca. Hello, Kim Fu. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I read this book about a year ago when it came out. I got through almost the whole thing on a single plane ride out to the West Coast, which is apt since that's 
mostly where you reside. While I haven't read your previous works, I know that mostly you come from the novel. And from what I understand, this is a, a more speculative venture in some way, shape or form, I think in each story than some of your previous works. So I'd love if you could talk about how you came to that, both in the short story as form and also in genre. So as a reader, I've always loved short stories and I've always loved speculative fiction, especially, I think even as a teenager, I would say that that was a lot of what I read. And I wrote short stories before, like, and, you know, I'd published some short stories, Mm -hmm. but I've always felt very intimidated by speculative fiction in general as a form. And I would have speculative ideas all the time, especially between my first and second novel. I had all these high concept sci-fi ideas for novels, uh, but they would fall apart kind of because I would pick at them excessively, sort of. I was really determined to figure out the mechanics of them to a degree that was actually not helpful when you're constructing a literary work. You know, I wanted to understand like the mathematics of how it would work and kind of their global repercussions and could this actually exist and what would all the consequences be? And I would get so fixated on that, that sort of all the magic would die. And also, you know, I'm not a mechanical engineer, you know, I'm not actually trying to file a patent application or like it actually invent or build this thing. And so I would just, I would get stuck and fall apart and I'd, I'd move on. And it took a really long time for me to accept that what I actually wanted to do was tell like these smaller, more human stories uh, that are just set in these worlds that are just related to these machines and that the literal realism of the machine is not as important as sort of the emotional realism of the story, that the story feels real, that the characters feel real, not that the machine is itself necessarily perfectly 100% plausible. I also think I held speculative ideas to a standard of originality that I would not necessarily for a literary idea. You know, like if I were writing a realist story and I thought like, oh, I want to write about someone caring for their dying mother, I would not then think, oh, but there's so many stories of people caring for their dying mothers. You know, why we don't need another one. But then if I, for example, was thinking like, oh, I want to write a story about a virtual reality simulator, I would then think, oh, but there's too many stories of virtual reality simulators. Like I can't come up with some new simulator that's not like any simulator we've seen before. I think it's, you know, artistically wrongheaded. And so I had a lot of like hangups about speculative fiction and science fiction, even as I love it as a reader um, before I could work past. You know, that's, it's so interesting that that's what you say, because in reading these stories in this collection, to me, there's such a remarkable focus on the characters and, or I guess on character in each piece to the exclusion that I, I don't think about the world beyond each room at all. I think there's such a wonderful empathy in pre-simulation consultation, like sort of open, that opens the book. And I'm curious, how did you break through that? Because it, it sounds like, you know, your worries about writing speculative fiction are so removed from the very focused and tender character work that that went into this collection. Did you just wake up and say, no, it's fine? Or was they're reading another work or simply hacking away at it or discussing with an editor? So I keep this record of all the books that I read. And I started working on this collection uh, towards the end of 2017. Mm-hmm. And it was with real focus and obsession in a way that I haven't worked on anything else. Like while I was writing my novels, I was working on lots of other stuff. I was also writing poems and essays and recorded feature 
authors and things like that. But while I was working on this collection, I was only working on this collection. I was only writing these short stories. And when people ask me like, you know, what, what changed, like what flipped that switch in your head? Uh, I, my first thought was to like, go back to that list and see like, what was the last book I read before this happened? Uh, and last book I read was uh, stories of your life and others by Ted Chang. Well, that's one of my favorite collections. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. And the new one is really good too. Like Exhalation. Exhalation is, is an amazing. Yeah. I think in a way he does the opposite of what I'm saying. Like, I feel like his science fiction conceits are so well thought out and mm. so real feeling. Some of his stories feel like thought experiments, you know, beyond the conventional elements of fiction at all. But there was something about those stories. And I feel like that they, they gave me something so different from what I'd really thought about what short stories can do, or like it broke all the, the rules for short stories I had in my head that I think they made me feel really excited about the form and the possibilities of it um, in, a, in a new way. I also think Kevin Brockmeyer was a huge inspiration. He writes like exactly what I'm trying to do. He writes like extremely human stories where the fantastical elements are are kind of beside the point. They're just like his interest is so is so tightly focused on the human that the enormous world-changing event, you know, that like now when you cut people, light comes out instead of blood. It's like what we're really talking about is like all these like human repercussions. And those those are two writers that come to mind as being like big points of inspiration. Great, great recommendations. I'd love to see that spreadsheet. I really, really connect with that. I think I think it's worth noting too that this focus on on character and I don't know if hand waving is the right word, but acceptance that you know the the hard science of it doesn't matter because it it doesn't matter really does I think help shift through all of the stories, not just the more openly science fiction ones. One that really really stuck with me was Sandman. And do you remember Candy, the the closing story? Those two in particular. I've actually heard you say that you worried that Do You Remember Candy would be misinterpreted as a COVID piece, and I'm, I, and which actually surprised me because that never occurred to me while reading it. Instead, what I'm curious about is I feel like several stories in this approach, I don't know if depression is the right word, but perhaps explorations of grief and almost that the more fantastical elements are ways to externalize grief and depression and almost repression through your stories. I agree. I agree with that entirely. Like, I think grief is the major theme of, of the collection. I think when people ask me, you know, is there a thread that ties it all together? I often land on grief, grief as, you know, this sort of multi-directional multifaceted thing, uh, the mm -hmm. way you grieve, not just for literal deaths, although there are a lot of, there's a lot of that in the book, but also the way you grieve for the world you used to know, or the world you thought would be, you know, the, the, the life you were expecting to have, or the way you grieve a relationship you know, the way you grieve, like your, your child growing up and your relationship changing. And then I also think a lot of it is about the way there is no space to grieve. That being a real feature of our lives for a long time now is that everything feels like it's moving so fast and the losses pile up so quickly and you have to just kind of keep trucking, you know, to just keep going. The emails don't stop no matter like what terrible thing happened today in your, in like, you know, in your private life. And then also in, in the world at large, I think that emotion kind of permeates the whole book, the constancy of grief and also the lack of space for it. The emails don't stop would make just a horrifying, like motto to slap on the wall of everyone's office. You know, it's interesting because I find with collections, oftentimes there's a temptation to just slap a story title as the title of, of the piece. But I, I really like the title that you chose because it does feel like 
these lesser known monsters are not like, you know, like not always physical elements of the pieces, although I am scared of June bugs now. Um, so th thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm curious about the process of editing this, since you said that you didn't work on anything else during the construction of this book. And I know that some pieces were published earlier in other forms, and I know that they took slightly different forms. I'll shout out another podcast. I actually just listened to Hashtag Climbing Nation on the LeVar Burton Reads podcast. And I thought he did a really excellent job of it. I loved that so much. <laughs> what, a, what a surprise that the Reading Rainbow man did a good job of reading. But I'm, I'm curious if you weren't working on anything else. And I know that sitting in Calgary, so I'm holding a, uh, a Coach House copy, but I, I know that you worked with Tin House on this. How did you approach the construction of, of the order? I, I don't feel that these were just written sequentially, but they all feel very purposeful. And I'm wondering how, how you approached that and how you constructed it. So while I was writing them, I had a vague sense that some of them were early stories. Some of them were middle stories. Some of them were later stories. The final story, Do You Remember Candy? And the final image of it, of you know, a mother watching her daughter dancing in the snow through the window. That to me was always the final image of the book. Like as mm. soon as I landed on the image, it's like this, this closes the book, even though that wasn't the last story I wrote. And it felt like once I had found that image, I believed in the book in a different way than I had up to that point, because it had this landing point now that everything could kind of point towards. But the specifics of the ordering, actually, a lot of that came from my editor at Tin House, Maisie Cochran, who told me that in the, the form that my manuscript had on submission, she felt that the gems were hidden, sort of. Mm. It was her idea to put a pre-simulation consultation first, which I think was absolutely the right call. And I can't imagine another way now. Neither um, can I. But I think at the time, the reason why I resisted putting it at the front or why I hadn't put it in the front mm. is because to me, it was such a strange story in so many ways. It was It's the only story that is formally strange like it it's mm. like the entire story is uh dialogue there and there's no dialogue tags it's just this floating dialogue with no other information and i felt like i worried that it would be you know dauntingly weird to some readers or on the other hand that it would over promise you know formal inventiveness that does not continue through and she felt the opposite she felt like this is the story that calls the right reader you know, like the right reader opens the book, they read the beginning of this story and, they, and they're in or they're not, you know, and mm -hmm. the readers you want are the ones that are in right away. And this idea of like lead with the weirdness and like pull in the readers, you know, who that's what they're looking for had not occurred to me and was like completely correct. That's, that's really wonderful. I find a lot of writers with short story collections sort of do talk about the initial worry about finding a mass audience and then realizing that it's more important to find their audience. Mm -hmm. Although this, this has found a mass audience, which thrills me because it's very frustrating when I've read a book and no one else has it, I can't talk to them about it. Going beyond simply the ordering and the structuring, I'm curious about some of your types of characters. Really, I was struck with the way that you write characters throughout age. The children in Liddy first to fly versus, you know, sort of the crushed by capitalism adulthood of June bugs or Sandman. And I'm, I, but there's, it never feels like it's coming from a, a voice that's not yours. So in, in particular, because I find a lot of people can't write kids, including kids, I wanted to ask about Liddy first to fly and, and sort of where that came from and how you found the voices for that. I have a real fascination with that exact age. I think I have to, in a way, push myself to write things other than <laughs> children that exact age, like that like cusp of puberty, mm -hmm. like early adolescence age, because 
it's such a weird time. One of my nieces, she she was she went to this ballet school where the, the kids come out by age. So it's like you watch, like when you at the recital. So you watch the three-year-olds dance, the four-year-olds dance, the five-year-olds dance, on and on and on until you're like in the high school age kids. And up until like that exact point, like until they're like nine years old, the kids all look kind of the same. You know, they're all about the same height. They're all like more or less able to do the same things. And then there's this explosion in difference at that point. Like they're they're all extremely different heights, extremely different abilities. And the reality is that they're they're really different in like physical and mental maturity. So some children around that age are very, very naive and easy to manipulate. And some of them have like incredible powers of manipulation already. <laughs> and so they create the most like strange social dynamics and worlds uh, mm. amongst themselves. I also feel like it's this age where they're losing their ability to play pretend. They're losing their ability for imagination to feel just as real as the real world, which also has all these strange results where I feel like they're they're trying to understand the real world, but they're still kind of making up parts of it uh, to like patch over the things they don't understand. And so to me, it's this, it's this period of time where it's like every single day and moment is like filled with conflict in a certain way and filled with newness, where I feel like when I write about adults, I'm often glossing over huge patches of time. And you like construct a story by like picking out the moments that matter over as long a period of time as you need, right? Like you would write something like three years later, which you would never, I would never do in a story about a child, right? A story about a child, I feel like is really, really immediate in a way because their whole lives are really dramatic to them in a moment to moment way. Brushing your teeth for two minutes as a 12 year old is an eternity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But as an adult, I feel like whole days can kind of vanish, right? Weird into, years. It just sort of sameness. Yeah. yeah. I know one of your previous books is with kids set this age. That's, that's on my to-do list once my, once my semester ends. Cause I, I love the way that you write, you, you write, I think that sort of middle school age with such a, I guess, rigor that I find a lot of people either make children just silly or little mutants speaking in adult voices. So I, I really, I really love that. I think bouncing off of that directly, it's interesting to me that you say that you would be comfortable with huge time shifts through stories with adults. Cause I, I there's some in this book, but there's, there's also climbing nation, literally a story titled 20 hours pre-simulation consultation. Obviously there's several stories that take place in a really tight sort of time frame. And while this isn't like an action book, you have such a wonderful sense of, of tension and pacing. And, you know, sort of going off of the opposite of, of how you write kids, because your answer had a lot to do with time. So I am curious if you could talk about how you approach time and pacing with the adults of your stories and how, you know, it really feels like I sat in June bugs for the length of a novel. I read this book in a single sitting, I got to tell you, the first time. But I, I felt like I sat in, in certain settings for, for years. And I'm, I'm curious about how that thought of how time slips away as an adult plays a role in, I guess, crafting some of these narratives. So like Climbing Nation is a single evening. For my own writing, I really like scene. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's a universal requirement like I think I like lots of storytellers like and in this way where it, it's a different voice it's like not an, an the same kind of immediacy like and they're not that's like not their interest as storytellers their writing has like more of a balance of exposition or even like is very heavy on exposition and I, I think that that can be like a very wonderful and effective story storytelling mode I think you know Ted Chang who we're just talking about has stories like that he has stories that have almost no scene at all and they're wonderful for my own writing I really 
want to be in scene all the time, kind of. I want to be really present in sensory information, like, uh, you know, things that I can see and smell and touch and that the characters can and finding those moments that add up to a story, like finding these like sensory moments that all together make up a story is what interests me. I find that in my own writing, if I'm writing expositionally, if I'm writing the way things always are, or I'm like sort of summarizing over long periods of years, it is sort of a necessary evil, or I get bored, or I realize this is just sort of preliminary, like it's just sort of work for me that from, from which I, I need to draw out the scenes from which I need to find that sensory information so that I can really actually be in the story. So I don't think that this is something everybody has to do that like this is just universal writing advice is you know the, the show don't tell thing I, I don't think that is actually good useful universal writing advice if you really think about all the books you love but it is for me it for me I you know a hundred percent show yeah there's there's such an immediacy regardless of you know first person or second or third or whatever perspective you choose for this book there's such an immediacy to the the access to the scene and the character that it feels like some kind of veil has been stripped away and it creates a real a real vulnerability. You know, when I've discussed your book with people, there's a lot of the reactions is that people say that they felt, you know, they felt vulnerable or they felt like almost a sense of like physical oppression of their environments while reading it. So I, I really love that. I, I don't think there's any universal writing advice, you know, I, I know that you have some experience with teaching in that reference. And I'm, I'm curious, does experience with students or just working with other writers generally I guess, how does the more cooperative or social elements of writing sort of play beyond just reading other works? Like, does that play into your process? Does that affect how you think about, I guess, ongoing work? Oh, yeah, that was that was hugely important to my development as a writer. I, I did an MFA. I did the MFA at UBC. And I've worked as an editor for a long time. And I've worked as a teacher. And my favorite way of working as a teacher is kind of a one-on-one -on -one mentorship model where you're working with like one student on one project for a very long period of time. Mm. I think this was really crucial to learning to edit my own work is practicing on other people's. Like you develop your own taste, you develop like an editorial eye in a way that's very difficult to do practicing only on your own work where, you know, your, your ego is in the way and you can see things that are not actually on the page. Yeah. I think that that's, that's how I built those skills. And that's what I recommend to people, like people who struggle with self-editing is edit for other people and, you know, practice and you'll learn what matters to you and what works for you. And then you'll be able to turn that eye on your own work eventually. But yeah, just like on a personal level, I feel like the, the community aspect has been like the part of my career I have enjoyed the most. You know, when I feel like when I go to literary festivals and when I do events, like I, you know, I, I love connecting with, with readers and with the public, uh, but I feel like getting to meet other writers is like very often my favorite part. And I feel like I love supporting other writers and other writers have been so supportive of me. Like I feel like they've helped build my career in a really concrete way. And, and I think that that's like, that's my number one advice to people all the time is to, is to, build community in a genuine way, like to support the work that you're excited about and to tell people about all the books you love and to go to their readings and to like, you know, help people out and share opportunities. Like whenever something comes your way that, you know, you're not able to do, like make, suggest other writers or, you know, pass on these opportunities and, and just like be, you know, a good, like, you know, literary citizen in the community. I feel like that it's not only that like it will help you in a mercenary way, even though it will, it's also, it's just like, I think that that's like the most satisfying way to live and like to be a writer and like enjoy your life. That's such a wonderful answer. There's been a lot of talk, I think lately about the need for community and writing and, and how to maintain that if certain 
infrastructures go away. But also, I, I love that answer personally as someone who's writing really developed through being an editor on student magazine. So I, I feel correct now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, you, meant, you mentioned sort of transplanting, you starting at uh, UBC and, and now in Seattle. And I'm actually curious uh, in, in touching on that sense of community uh, as someone who hasn't lived outside of Canada. It's very cold here in Alberta today. Did that sense of community differ as, as you know, in operating in the States? Did, did you feel like you had simply access to more or do you feel like you've connected to like different scenes or different communities, I guess? I feel like in the U.S. my community is more specific, maybe. Hmm. <laughs> like I have a community here in Seattle of professional writers uh, who mm-hmm. are like my close personal friends. And I do have like a broader professional community as well. But it, but it is sort of based in Seattle and also based in kind of the non-New York, non-Iowa world, I guess, where it's important to me to like be like part of the community here. Like I, I, I moderate a lot of events for other writers when they come through town or other local writers, you know, like I'm known at the bookstores as someone that is willing to do that. And that's, you know, that, and that's something, that's something I enjoy, but I feel like Canada has always felt to me more like genuinely one community at times sort of I feel like there's a way in which like everyone knows everyone (laughs) uh in a degree that in a way that I guess is just not possible in the U.S. and they never forget you I feel like you know when I when I go back they like that you know they welcome you back into the family straight away you know I feel like you know my my experience has been so particular like people Mm -hmm. ask me about this a lot and I feel like I never really have a good answer Uh, I feel like I think that's a great answer it reminds me of that joke of in Canadian uh, literature, there's actually a single $5 bill that um, each person gets like a couple minutes with, and then we take it to the next, and then we go to the same event the next week and we pass it along to the next person. And then in a few weeks, it comes back to us because it's just one room of people. That sort of reminds me of that. that I think that's a great answer. I, I want to move back to the text of the book just a little bit. And I actually, I know I said no action earlier, but there's, there's at least one image of someone being shot in the back of the head. So I I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about your approach to violence. And I, I loved 20 hours and I loved that approach to it. But beyond the speculative aspect, what struck me is that the characters are so reflective about what different kinds of violence means. Like, you know, um, they say like poison means I don't want to hurt you. I just genuinely don't want you to exist for a while. Shooting you in the face means I'm very frustrated with you right now and I'd like it to stop. I'd love you know, for you to sort of elaborate on that, both in 20 hours and other stories. Like, again, I feel that the invasion of June bugs in, in June and June bugs and also the domestic violence in that story it are also very shocking, but also really calculated. And in terms of what it tells your reader about violence as a tool, as well as a trauma, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you approached that. I think comparing those two stories uh, is, is is especially interesting. For for June bugs, I feel like the violence is very like slow and mm-hmm. gestural. You know, the mm-hmm. the, yeah. the violence consists of of a million tiny gestures mm-hmm. that build to undeniable violence. But even that undeniable violence happens sort of second by second. Mm-hmm. And I think it was it was important to me that that violence, I think, felt extremely real and mm. extremely visceral and like zoomed in really close in, in, into that moment because it's the real part, I guess. It, you know, it's like the analog to like the fantastical aspect, which is the bugs. You know, it was really important to me that this dynamic felt 
real and right. Like they felt accurate to the way that this would play out between these two people. I think the violence in 20 hours is comical often, right? And it's very extreme and it's very harsh and quick. But I feel like the the impact of it on the page is supposed to be kind of like bracing and immediate and then and then gone. Because I think there it's serving what I think of as the monster function. I mentioned Kevin Brockmeyer earlier, and he was talking about how he had wrote a story back when he was a student that had no ghost in it, but he had a professor say, this is a ghost story. And something that helped me a lot when I was editing this book is to think like every story is a monster story, even if it had no monsters in it. And, and to me, what a monster is, is there's an element of the story that is that is so big and so weird that it provides a point of focus for the story in a certain way. And it has elevated all of these murky emotions or murky ideas into something concrete and manifest that we can actually look at. And for me, it was this body printer allowed them to, you know, for these feelings, these feelings that you exist in every relationship, right? Of sometimes you're like, I, I, I just wish I had the house to myself right now. That, that kind of feeling. To turn it into like, a violent impulse that you could act upon, right? It's like that that kind of escalation is like, now we can really look at this feeling, right? If we've given it this concrete form, you know, we can we can see it much more clearly. We can talk about it in a, in a, in a new way. So yeah, so I feel like the violence is functioning very differently there. And so like the writing necessarily had to be very different. I love 20 hours. And that's also interesting that you say slow versus quick cuts. I know I mentioned earlier that some of your stories I feel like I lived in for years. And that's a great example, actually, because for me, you know, like I said, like June bugs, I really feel when reading it, I feel like I'm there for so long. And the anxiety that you feel for her, not necessarily pity, but I think anxiety is the right word. The, that anxiety and that fear that you feel for her is just endlessly mounting. Whereas 20 hours, it's not that it's not about length, but it, it feels like these quick, these quick shocking cuts. That's such a great insight into how, how you approach pacing. Moving from there, you've talked a bit about the sensorial, and I really want to stay on that because I think that's one of the great strengths of this. So from, from violence to sensation, and I clearly I like linking, I like linking your texts. They're all in a book together for a reason. So for me, coming back to both Sandman and Do You Remember Candy, those are both stories, to me at least, that make the reader feel the world on their skin. I'll admit that when reading Sandman, I, I kept thinking of it as almost like a weighted blanket that goes inside you. So from that, the experiments within, do you remember Candy and, and how she creates the sensations? And especially in Do You Remember Candy, I remember being like, I, I wonder if the author tested some of these, because I truly do taste an egg in this scene. So I'm just curious about how you thought about or externalized these sort of sensations against the skin. My guess is that you didn't actually encounter the Sandman. I'm a lifelong insomniac. And so I've thought a lot about how to express that experience to other people. I've always wanted to write about it and kind of couldn't. I feel like it took me a really long time to land on exactly how to express the experience of really long stretches of sleeplessness and what that does to your mind and your body and your experience of the world. And also the kind of new agey wellness fight of like sleep hygiene and all these things that will help you that, that really, for me, at least it's like, it did not actually help. It just made you feel bad. Like it made you feel like, oh, like it's your own fault <laughs> because you know, the reason you can't sleep is because you haven't behaved in this perfect prescribed set of ways. And then, and then I think with Dear Mercandy, like I live for food, like very, very true. Like this is sort of my 
number one reason to be alive when I really think about it. And I, I love to eat and I love to think about food very, very deeply and to experience food really wholly, like with like my whole body. And, and so I think these are both things that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think about in these terms uh, as I'm living my life. I also think, I think those two stories in particular, they're connected to poetry I published a collection of poetry. I write less poetry these days, I realize. Like, I feel like my attention is turning more and more firmly to just fiction. I also write less nonfiction these days. But I feel like writing poetry and reading poetry has kind of trained me to look at the world in a certain way, to be looking for a precise way to describe any moment of experience and a new way to describe any precise moment of experience. And this is also something I encourage really young writers uh, who I feel like are very hung up on certain ideas of productivity and ambition and outlining. And that I think they're, they're really stuck in this part. I say like, go out in the world and just try to describe stuff, just describe the stuff around you and, you know, be outside of your yourself for a moment. And just, there's a poem and like a poetry activity called 13 ways to describe a blackbird. And the idea is like, you take an object and you try to describe it 13 ways. Like you try to write 13 very short poems about it, just like stick a wine bottle on the table and you try to describe it 13 ways. I think that that's like a very specific pleasure of poetry, but also like literature in general is when someone describes something in a way that feels totally new and also totally correct. Like when you hear, when you read that description and you're like, oh yeah, that's it. That strange connection. I think that's where that came from. So in that story that like food is being described in kind of these conceptual art experiences, I think that is a poetry leap for me. You know, sometimes it feels like when someone says this prose is poetic, it's the same as saying this movie really feels like a movie. And you can just go, that doesn't mean anything. But I do really feel that in your work. And I, I love that. I will say specifically, one of the times I went through the story, I actually listened to it through audio. And there's a moment in Do You Remember Candy? where you specify that not everyone seemed to miss food. And I guess not everybody cared about that taste. I think that's something that you really zone in on in your fiction is not just who your characters are, but who they're not, sort of the people around them. I really get a sense of that in Climbing Nation too, I guess, between the influencer crowd and the groupies and then the, uh, the more offline friendships. I was wondering if you could talk about Climbing Nation in particular. I guess we'll lead into a second question as well. It sort of stands out to me as both initially feeling almost out of place. And then the further in that you go into this narrative, for me at least, the more the monsters make themselves apparent. And I was wondering where, beyond just the fact that Instagram sucks, like where did, where the impetus for that came from? And the, I won't spoil it, although quite frankly, if for those listening to our, our lovely Tea House Talks podcast, pause, go read this book, and then come back and unpause at this exact moment. The twist at the end of the story that the sister has sent the climbers responsible for her brother's death off on a wild goose chase. Where did those layers sort of come from and those levels of parasocial relationality? I absolutely develop unhealthy parasocial obsessions with YouTubers and podcasters. And I feel like it got especially bad during the pandemic. I don't know if other people experienced this too. I think because you lost so much real world connection and you were connecting with your actual friends and families in the same mediated screen way that I think it was easy to, to be watching or listening to frankly, extremely boring content. Like, like I was trying to imagine how I would explain to myself from like five or seven years ago, why I'm watching the stranger grocery shop say, right. And it's like, why would you do this? Why would anyone do this? Why are millions of people doing this? And, you know, and it's hard to explain that you have like 
you feel like you have developed with a relationship with this person where it is like sort of comforting to be in their presence, even if it is not real. I think that that has been extremely fascinating to watch in general, right? Like how deeply betrayed people feel when someone they have this imaginary relationship with does or says something against their, you know, their own values or, you know, is like revealed to be not who they think they are. It's such a feature of so many of our lives, but it's, it's also kind of shameful. And like, I feel like looked down upon as juvenile. And I feel like there was a way when I was writing the story that the main character who goes and who, you know, who crashes the memorial of an, an influencer and pretends to know him while I was writing it, I think she did not feel that strange to me. Like, like what she did did not seem like that unreasonable initially. Like it, it's only sort of later upon reflection, but it's like, wow, this is, this is a nuts thing to have done. I think an inattentive reader could almost miss what her actual connection is early on if they don't realize because she goes, well, we, we did go to the same college together and you might just go, oh. I think it was just a difference in degree and not kind to like the kinds of feelings I have had and realized I was having. I actually researched a little bit like the history of the term parasocial relationship. In particular, this woman that used to do this radio show where she just talked like kindly to you. <laughs> and it was specifically directed at like bachelors. Like she was like a fake wife who would say comforting things and just be like a comforting woman's voice was the concept of the radio show. I think this idea was so interesting to me. And there were so many different ways I wanted to write about. Like I've been trying to write an essay about it for, for a long time and it just kind of wasn't working. I also think all of the stories they do have some lineage in a kind of early 20th century pulp fiction, thrilling tales kind of structure. And a lot of those are fantastical or sci-fi or have, you know, those elements. But some of them just have this kind of twisty, plotted, like cruelty that is fun and shocking. And I feel like it's structured sort of similarly to the way Hashtag Climbing Nation is. LeVar Burton's reading of it was really interesting to me because I feel like the way that they audio produced it made it feel like sort of a parlor drama, like which, which I had not thought of before. Like this kind of early 20th century story where everyone is in like one living room and you know someone in the room is the murderer, like that kind of story, which I hadn't thought about in that way, but I was like, oh, that's, that's exactly what it is. And I feel like that reading and production of it made that really, really clear. There used to be this adult story time at the Seattle Public Library that I would go to where one of the librarians who has like this amazing voice, he would read short stories that were now in the public domain that were from these like magazines from like the early 20th century, mostly. And this was the style of story that I really, really enjoyed. You know, even though I've listened to the LeVar reading, I never thought of that. But now that you've saying that, I'm going, oh, it's Clue. I do love the way that you play with genre and form in that way, like a locked mystery, like Clue style whodunit, but, you know, maybe with less running around. I'm curious if that's something that you would look more to in the future of playing with form outside of not simply genre, but other ways that you can twist those tropes because those, you know, those early magazines were as someone who's read, like going from Asimov's to like astounding back to the beginning, because that's what my life is. Do you think that that's something that you would approach more purposefully is, is grabbing those sort of like classic formats and twisting them this way? I think I can't think about that stuff while I'm writing, especially in the early stages. I think it's a useful thought to have while editing, like to give focus. And also like, I feel like when you get stuck editing or you get stuck in like a rewrite to have kind of those structures in mind and to know that they exist and you're playing with them or they can sort of guide you forward. But I think for the early stages of writing, 
it has to be kind of by osmosis, sort of like, I think I have to read a lot, you know, and absorb lots of forms and lots of structures uh, and different modes and genres and of storytelling. And then it'll kind of come out naturally, like you just you, you write what you write. And then I think later thinking more explicitly about form can be helpful. And I'm in that phase right now of like trying to write truly from scratch, something completely new, first draft, first pour. And it's, I feel like I've forgotten how awful it is in some ways. There's a lot on grief and not only of death, but of relationships in this book. And the way that I always think about it is that the end of a manuscript is like the end of a relationship and you have to like grieve it for a little while and then you have to panic because you don't remember what it was like to go out and have to meet new people and start that again because you've, you've been in this relationship with this one work for so long. I want to actually stick on editing a little bit other than the order of the stories. What transformed between manuscript and book? In this fantasy was in the 2019 advent or maybe the 2018 or 2019 um, short story advent calendar. And it changed quite a lot. I feel like it was much weirder and more impressionistic in its short story advent calendar form, where I feel like it was too inaccessible. Like I think it, it there was something at the at the heart of it that I wanted to say that only I could see in that form. And I, I think, you know, the editor, Michael Olson, just sort of enjoyed the language of it, enjoyed like the images of it, enjoyed it that way. Like what, what an interesting sort of tone poem thing you've made, right? Uh, but I think the thematic core of it was lost. And I think a lot of people felt that way, like who who read the book. I feel this was like a lot of people's least favorite story uh, in its manuscript form. And in a lot of ways, it was my favorite story. <laughs> and so that was really helpful, actually, is like, realizing that a lot of what I wanted wasn't coming through and to think about making specifically like the theme of the core narrator being so different from the, the version of herself and her fantasies was really was getting lost because I feel like I was trying to do this like slow unveiling of the narrator where I think that she needed to be a little clearer from the jump. A lot of the endings actually changed while working with Maisie at Tin House, where she would often push me to kind of expand out just a little bit, you know, to make it one page longer, or the like penultimate scene needed to be longer, or there was a missing penultimate scene, or it was obvious that I like had fallen in love with like a line to end the story that is not the correct ending to the story. It just like is a beautiful line. My experience with Macy was like very different than I had previously had with editors. We talked on the phone and it was very open and generative. Like she would say very like, you know, what if this happened, which I've never had an editor do, <laughs> you know, I have been getting notes, like written notes that I could take or leave, you know, that were that were mine to enact or not. And so a kind of high level, like generative conversation, where we're just like sort of building excitement. And then I went off and did whatever I was going to do. It was like, was very different and very exciting for me. And I really, I really loved working with Maisie. I think she's like incredible and I feel like she finds a way to kind of join you in your head in like the funnest part of the writing, which is like not usually how I think about how I think about editing. I think in general, as an editor, I love to cut. Like I love, I love having a big heap of stuff that I can whittle down. Like I think the blank page part is the hardest for me, both in my own work and in other people's work. Like I think getting in a draft from a writer that's too long and it's like my job to cut it down. I think it's like, that's where I shine. So, but I think my work often has the opposite problem where I'm missing like connective tissue and I need someone to tell me that, to say like, 
you need to make this more explicit, or there's a beat missing here, or, you know, no one is coming along with you if, unless you make this clearer, you know? Honestly, that sounds like an amazing process. I've never spoken to someone who worked with Tin House who didn't praise what it was like to work with Tin House. They're amazing. They're the okay. happiest people in publishing, is my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I just want to say, uh, in this fantasy, it's not. I don't have a least favorite story. I guess there's a blank page after about the author, which means I had to stop reading because the book was over. I, I didn't like that bit. I found in this fantasy really striking. I'll have to go read, I guess, the the Advent version if that's if that's available. I'd, I'd love to see that evolution. I guess one more question in, in, I guess, the edit or the formulation of this book is I'm super curious if everything may, made it in. Beyond the changes in the stories, is there a lost tale to lesser known monsters of the 21st century? Uh, was there anything, you know, in publication that didn't make it all the way through? Yes, there was a story that got cut. The story was originally published in Enroute magazine, like the, the magazine that's in the back of the, the seat back pocket on Air Canada flights. <laughs> They did a fiction project um, one year and I was in the, I think they did a summer and a winter and I was part of summer where they commissioned a bunch of writers to write stories under very, very specific parameters. Like the stories had to be <laughs> a specific length. They had to be about a specific Canadian place. They couldn't have swear words in them. There was like, there were all these really, really specific parameters about what the, the piece should be. The story I wrote, I, I like, um, <laughs> but it was in the second person and it was like kind of a ghost story. And it was also a story about domestic violence uh, that kind of alluded to the domestic violence in a way that was, you know, family friendly enough for the for the parameters of the magazine. But it just it did not fit in the collection. And it, it was a story I really liked. And so I kind of kept trying to jam it in there. But that was everyone's reaction all along the way. You know, my agent said it didn't fit. Her assistant said it didn't fit. And I said, like, no, leave it in anyway, and on submission. And then Maisie at Tin House said it didn't fit. And then I was like, well, what does everyone else at Tin House think? And everyone else who read it said it didn't fit. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, fine. You know, like we tried moving it around. Like, does it work better in different places? And it just, it just ultimately didn't. It like just did not, it just did not speak with the other stories in a way. And, and so, so I had to go. I actually can perfectly imagine saying, what, what does everyone else at the publisher think? <laughs> I wanted to ask the absolute worst question that you can ask a writer after they've had a book out, which we've already alluded to. And you can absolutely just make a face at me and like hang up without saying goodbye, which is you mentioned that you're trying to start from scratch again. So what do you want to write next? I'm trying to write a novel again, and it's not going well, <laughs> is what I would say. I learned uh, sort of early on that I do need to be kind of always working on something because after my first novel came out, I had a very dark, difficult period of time where I was like very convinced I would never write again. And, and the result of that was that like all of my self-worth was like hung on that first novel, you know, because when it did well or someone liked it or someone didn't like it, you know, like my self-esteem was writing entirely on this. And I felt like I'm, I'm very sympathetic to debut authors in general. A lot of debut authors they're having a very hard year <laughs> and they're sort of not allowed to talk about it because it's supposed to be this amazing, wonderful thing happened. Like your, your, your lifelong dream came true. You know, this thing that everyone wants happened to you, but it, it is like a very like brutal transition in a lot of ways. And I realized for me, a lot of what made it hard was that I was not working on something else from then on. I'm never not working on something, even if it doesn't end up being the next book or it doesn't work out or it ends in the garbage. It's like, I have to be working on something, some part of my brain has to be thinking about the next thing and like more invested in the next thing than the thing that just came out. 
about, because the thing that just came out, you know, you have no control over it. You have no control over how it's going to do, how people are going to react to it, whether or not it'll achieve what you want it to or whatever, right? Like all those things you have no control over. You do have control over your new thing. You do have control over just, you know, daydreaming about it, just writing down a couple of lines, just like doing something. So you feel like that's what's important. This thing that I can control and not the response to these things that are done that I have no control over. I'm trying to write a novel. It's is rough going, but this is like the third novel I'm trying to write. Like I've thrown out a lot of material this year because the ideas were not quite right. I was writing a novel about something similar to Meta. And then I feel like the situation with Meta got so ridiculous. I was like, I cannot outdo what this, what is actually happening in reality. Uh, and I and I just tossed it. I was writing something about video game designers, and then I read uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and I thought like I, this is what I was trying to do, and I feel like she's done it so much better than I can. Like I'm moving on, but yeah, I'm 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 working on a novel. That was a lot of words to say. I'm working on a novel. No, no, no. That 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 was good. That was also good because you also answered you know a question which I never asked, which I didn't ask the kill your in a broader sense, I didn't ask like the kill your darlings question. I think we could build a wonderful, a wonderful library exclusively with pages thrown away by good writers. They're all going terribly right up until you hit the end and then it's done. And then that one was the best one. And then you start the anxiety about the next one. Well, I can't wait to read it one day, but in the meantime, I, I will be going through the back catalog of your work and also probably going through this at least a few more times while I force everyone I've ever met to read it. It's either that or I just talk to a blank wall about books. It's one or the other. I mean, I appreciate that a lot. Please keep forcing everyone you know to read it. <laughs> I don't think it'll be too hard. Uh, can, I also want to congratulate you on the reception that it's gotten. A uh, finalist for the, the Giller and also a, a prize in the States. So thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Kim Fu by Ben Berman Gann. I'm Amy LeBlanc, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jalen, Mahmoud Ababna, Ryan Stern, Shu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Benjamin Gan, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.